Welcome to the Hub City Homers. I believe we are now on episode five. I guess I think I mislabeled the Super Regional preview as a bonus, so it threw off the count a little. But this is our fifth effort. We are here today. I am here today, excuse me, with Kendall and Jack. Reed is unavailable tonight. We will catch him next time. Hopefully we can get the whole gang back together again at least a couple times before the football season starts to give you guys our thoughts. Um, but we aren't quite done with baseball yet. We're going to start tonight by talking about baseball, kind of recapping the Super Regional, yes, but just looking back on the season as a whole. And then more importantly, looking ahead to the roster movements that have started and will continue to happen up till next season. I don't know what the, the full impact of the transfer portal stuff will be for baseball, but we will see certainly see some more movement, so that will be important to monitor for next year. We're also going to talk about the NIL stuff going on right now. Um, that'll be briefer, but I think it's relevant to review that for Tech fans, since that is going to be in effect very soon, and what that's going to look like in the Big 12. Lastly, we'll wrap this up with a little bit of a preview of football. We're going to keep it pretty high level, general expectations. We'll be doing tons of football content in the upcoming weeks as we get closer and closer to the kickoff event on September 4th. But like I said, we're starting with baseball, so we're going to go to our baseball expert, Jack. Jack, looking back at the Stanford Regional, the disappointment of that weekend is is hard to understate considering just how badly tech played but from your perspective you know what was the what was the biggest reason that tech just couldn't get anything going that weekend you know that that would be the million dollar question i really can't think of a reason that they couldn't get it going they just lost all momentum they had. You know, you have that that opening game. Everyone's fired up. The fans are fired up. The teams are fired up. And Stanford goes out and scores four runs in the top of the first. And in my opinion, as I stated in my article for Viva, the crowd was really never the same all weekend after that first inning. Uh, it was... It was just lackluster. It was kind of just ho-hum this, ho-hum that. Uh, it doesn't help when Tech only scores three runs on Friday and are held off the scoreboard on Saturday, uh, combining for only nine hits over two games. Uh, nine, nine hits and five errors over two games they had more errors than runs scored on the weekend which is not a good look uh big props to stanford shout out to stanford they came in and heard they pretty much heard all week how they couldn't handle the texas heat promptly decided to wear black <laughs> on friday and 108 degree weather on that turf which i heard from uh grounds crew member down there that it was feeling about 130 to 135 on the field with all that turf so uh, you know it's getting pretty dicey down there and it was about 115 in the dugouts i can tell you from sitting in the stands on those metal bleachers it was very hot on friday very hot felt like i lost about 10 pounds in water weight just from sweating uh but the overall look from the weekend was just it just seemed tech ran out of gas they had a phenomenal regional weekend everything was working the bullpen was great we were hitting the ball everywhere 
good base running, good fielding, hardly any errors. And it just seemed that everything the following weekend was the exact opposite. And it was it was t- tough to watch. It was tough to be there and watch. It was tough to sit out in 108, 110 degrees and watch. Um, it just, it was not a fun time. And, you, you know, you typically, tech fans are known for staying till the end, regardless uh, for baseball games, just because, you know, it's the last games of the year or whatever. Uh, not in these. The fans were up in both games and heading to uh, the exits by about the sixth or seventh inning. Uh, no one was sticking around to watch what was happening on the field. Uh, you know, Stanford came in. They, could, they couldn't they could miss. I believe on Friday, everyone on their team except for one person in the starting lineup had a hit, at least one. Uh, there were multiple guys, two guys with three hits, a couple guys with two hits. Uh, on that's on Friday. That's when the game that Tech lost fifteen to three. In the uh, Saturday effort, which was not much better for Tech, uh, you know you had Brock Jones, who was a center fielder for Stanford, who he ended up going three for five with three home runs, six RBIs. Uh, Tech had two hits on Saturday. Both of them were from Cole Stillwell, who was pretty much the only person for Tech that was hitting at all over the weekend. Uh, and so it was just a, it was just a disappointing effort. And I mean, you, we were talking about it on here about, you know, if tech keeps playing like this, you know, the sky's the limit. I could see a trip to Omaha and I, I still believe that, you know, if they would have played well against Stanford, I still think you could have beaten Stanford in Lubbock if they played well, but they, they really didn't play well. Yeah. I think what always will bother me about that weekend is because I, I, I have to credit Stanford. That was a pretty special effort. I, I don't think people recognize just how above average Stanford was playing on that day. Um, on the, on that weekend, I should say, and how badly tech really played. Uh, it, it was, it was the kind of weekend where, yeah, besides Stillwell, I'm not sure who else had a decent weekend. I mean, they were all really, really bad. Uh, it was, it was, it was the kind of stuff we talked about all season. I think was the problem. What was so disappointing about it was it was the same thing we ran into all year, which was Tech would string together, you know, a couple wins in a row, and there'd be some good vibes, and then you would have something like this happen, and you'd lose the the Kansas State series or you lose the Baylor series. And I thought after the regional that it looked like Tech was playing its best baseball. I thought Chase Hampton gave you kind of the missing the missing link, as it, as it were, and, and that didn't materialize. Uh, Stanford thoroughly outplayed Tech, and it, it, it just looked like a team that got tired. I think it was this year in particular was very, very hard on the guys um, with good reason. I think they had to play far harder than they maybe normally would have had to. There were a lot of guys who were asked to do a lot more. There were a lot of guys who wouldn't normally have necessarily been in the positions they were. Um, you know, guys like Monteverde in particular, he's probably not in this position late in the year. And, uh, you know, though I don't fault him as much for what happened. 
Uh, I know, I know there's people who are going to blame the pitching for the weekend, but the reality of the situation was, is, you know, you weren't probably going to hit much against Stanford's ace. That's why you pitched Chase Hampton. You, you were kind of sacrificing that game on the understanding that you don't necessarily have an all around arm as good as that kid. And, um, that's what happens. But, you know, in the second game, Monteverdi gave up a couple of runs and it just, it felt like, you know, that was, that was it. And it really shouldn't have been, um, the, the, the run support should have been there to help him when he got into trouble, especially because, and I mean, no, no offense to, to Williams for who threw an amazing game, but throughout he, that guy should never have been able to do that to anybody, let alone an offense like tax in Lubbock. So it was just a really piss poor performance by Tech. I mean, that's just it's disappointing because I like I said, I don't know if you can beat Stanford playing if they're playing that well, but the inability to hit a fastball was just baffling. Because if you had been able to hit the fastball, you know, a basic pitch that they teed up all year in Lubbock, if you'd been able to hit it, you get into Stanford's bullpen, you win going away. You know, that they Stanford really only has two arms. I mean, that, that's all they've got. And the, if you had been able to get either one of them off the mound in a decent amount of time, you would have won the series. There's just no chance Stanford could have come back and beat you in a third game. But it doesn't matter if the All-Pac-12 world player goes eight innings and then the no-name, nobody knew coming in, goes nine. So you, you didn't take advantage of their weaknesses. You played badly. Defensively, Tech was bad. I didn't think the coaching was that stellar. I mean, Tim Tadlock isn't a fantastic coach, well-deserving of his contract, but it wasn't anybody's best weekend. It just wasn't. And that's unfortunate. That's what the that's what's going to hurt more than anything this year was just that I felt like you didn't get to see Tech baseball end on a high note. You know, it wasn't a battle. It was a route. But, uh, you know, you got to have a lot of players coming back, a lot of guys coming back, a lot of guys on the move and some transfers coming in and out. So I guess I'll go to Kendall with this one first. Kendall, if it, of all the guys coming back, with the exception besides Jace Young, which is the easy answer, you know who's the guy that you're most excited to see get a second year after this run, or not a second year, excuse, another year. Uh, you know, there's quite a few guys on this roster that you know are going to be looking to prove a lot next year, but I'm not going to go a specific player. I'm actually going to go like. Uh, the whole pitching staff, in my opinion, I feel like this year we didn't really get to see, you know, how talented they really are with all the injuries and stuff. I feel like having a f- pitching staff at full power going into next year, I think that that whole staff is going to have a lot to prove, especially with the lack of consistency there was in that area this year. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, the pitching staff is one to look at. Um, I really can't tell you who I'm most excited to see. I'm, I'm excited to see everyone back. Uh, obviously, like you said, the, the obvious pick is Jace Young. Uh, if you're, if it's not Jace Young, you know, uh, why not Cal Conley? Uh, hopefully he comes back and if he decides to come back, uh, you know, uh, we'll see what he can do. Um, I'm really would like to see, uh, Parker Kelly get that bat work. And if I think if he puts in a solid off season and it just improves his, 
uh, improves his hitting, that the sky is really the limit for him. Because everyone knows he plays a mean hot corner over there at third. Uh, his fielding has never been in question to anyone. Uh, the only kind of weak spot in his game has been his hitting, which is kind of ironic because everyone else on this team can absolutely rake. But I think that if you get Parker Kelly a hot bat and with his already great fielding efforts, uh, I think that that's a very intriguing uh, person to have on your roster there at third base, kind of holding down the hot corner. Uh, I also, I'm interested to see, not kind of build off what Kendall said also a little bit, not really just the pitching staff. I'm interested to see what the effort is from our guys who were injured and didn't throw a single inning this year. I'm, I'm interested in, uh, you know, what Hunter, uh, Hunter Dobbins is doing. I'm interested in uh, Austin Becker, uh, Jacob Brustowski, you know, those guys. I want to see, I hope that none of them have lost, uh, you know, any steps on their game. Uh, but I'm just kind of interested to see, what they'll look like. I'm also really interested to see what Dylan noisy will look like coming back after injury. Um, you know, he's going to be the de facto team captain of this team. He'll have the most experience and, uh, you know, I don't know if he'll be able to take a medical red shirt for this year or if they, Oh, I guess, I don't know if they get an extra year for this or not, but, um, you know, I think, I'm interested to see the guys that got hurt and were not able to return. Uh, just how just how those injuries affected their game and if they'll be able to fully recover. Uh, I on when it comes to the roster, uh, I've been kind of looking at some of the social media accounts for some of the guys that are kind of on the fence. Uh, I noticed uh, today that Braxton Fulford and Brandon Birdsell are at some sort of MLB type combine type thing in uh, North Carolina. So that's an interesting turn. Uh, I kind of thought most of the year that after the great year that Braxton had, he would probably lean towards leaving. Uh, Bird sells kind of a shock to me uh, for that just because he got hurt. And I don't think if my, if my uh, memory serves me correctly. I don't think that he's actually had a full season at the collegiate level. I think he's been hurt in every uh, in every season that he's played. So uh, it's a little interesting that he would be leaving, but you know, stranger things have happened. Uh, but really, I'm just looking to see uh, how those guys that were injured come back, and if they come back, you know, with a vengeance and with a chip on their shoulder. What I think is fun about this roster going forward is going to be the fact, just the reality that you are getting back some of your best players, no matter what. You're going to get Cal and Jace back, no matter what, um, barring some completely unprecedented disaster of a roster turnover with those either one of those guys transferring. But So you're going to have arguably the nation's overall best player in Jace Young and definitively the nation's best shortstop in Cal Connolly returning. And... There's no reason to believe that the team's going to take a significant step back just with those two guys coming back. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of talent still on the team, and I mean, I think today we just saw a kid out of A&M's coming over uh, uh, who was a, I think, career 245 batter, played in most of their games, was not a 
I should say, I guess there's a distinction between constant starter and regular starter. He was a regular starter, but he was not in every outing. Um, he's coming over. So you're kind of reloading already. And we just got started. This is just, this process is just getting started. Like I said, baseball's not going to be like the other sports. There's not going to be quite as much turnover year to year just because the, the it doesn't lend itself as much to the mass roster churning as some sports do, but there is going to be movement. Uh, it would be a shame to lose Fulford, I think, in particular. Um, because, I don't know, just a few years ago, that was a guy Tech fans were not about. I mean, that was a guy we here at Viva were having to defend tooth and nail because he was getting every every bad play it felt like had him in it when he first came to Tech. And they they're... He wasn't great offensively. He really was bad. wasn't great offensively till this year. He was he was a, a liability offensively for a lot of his career, and it felt like this season he had eliminated. Now there were a couple stupid plays late in the year um, in the regional, for instance, where he threw away a couple balls, and there was the uh, there's been moments where he didn't throw guys out, balls were offline, and he's still not the world's greatest defensive catcher or the world's greatest offensive catcher, but he became an all-around well-rounded player. And I think he can take another step. Um, I don't know how the MLB evaluates guys because you can always stick somebody in the minors for a year or two and let them develop. Um, so I, it's it's just a different all-around world. But I would, if anybody who I think could go, he'd be one I'd love to get for one more year, however it needed to happen. Dylan Noisy is another guy, like you mentioned. I don't know how they're going to handle his injury. Um I don't know what the distinction is for a red shirt in baseball. And I don't know what the distinction is for a true medical red shirt. I'd like to think he's eligible, but I don't know that for certain because he was hurt so early in the year. And uh, it would really suck if that's the last we saw of him was that very, very early slight stretch. Because I think I've talked about this a couple times in the podcast, but he was the guy coming into the year that was expected to be the team's best player. That it, it was going to be him paired with really Hunter Dobbins, I think, were the two guys that were kind of going to be the face of the program this season. And we didn't get to see either of them. So it sucks that we lost out on both of them, and I'd love to get at least one of them back. Um, I feel for Birdsell, just horrific luck his entire career. Uh, and I think this would have been a great opportunity for him. I think he probably could have worked his way up to being the team's ace as hard as he throws and as well as he was throwing for the injury. So he's another guy... The transfers we've lost so far have not been guys you even were thinking about really having in your development pipeline anymore. They were true depth, and most of the three you've lost, only one had ever played. Um, and had he been thoroughly beaten out of his spot. So, you know, I don't know exactly, you know, what the landscape of college baseball is going to look like. feels like there's a lot of major programs changing coaches. So it's going to be a, a bit of a different feel in 2022. But from a pure roster building standpoint, I think Tech is is right up pace or ahead of the game of anybody else. I think you're going to be as good, if not better, if you can sort out your pitching situation, which Kendall kind of talked about. If, if those guys are healthy and throwing well, Tech is well positioned for 2022, which is fun because there's no reason to believe that we're going to fall off. And even if football and basketball are total clusters, um, at least we still get baseball to fall back on. Uh, someone that I'm gonna actually uh, miss. They're not a, they're not a senior, but I'm you know 95% sure that they're jetting for the major leagues. Uh, I'm gonna miss that bullpen depth and Ryan Sublette at the back of the bullpen. 
you know, especially watching what he did, you know, just in that UT series and, uh, you know, in the, in the regional, uh, you know, he had a hell of a, he had a hell of an appearance in, in the regional as well. So, you know, Ryan Sublette will be missed. Uh, I'm assuming he's going, obviously there hasn't been an official announcement. Um, Micah Dallas has been posting on or posted on social media as kind of like if he was leaving as well. So you're kind of losing a little bit of pitching depth there. Uh, Monteverde obviously is gone. Uh, you know, so the pitching is going to take a hit from some of the names that we saw a lot this year. And like we've talked about on the pod before, a lot of these guys were in these positions because of the, our lack of depth. Those These guys were not necessarily, they were big names for us this season. And I and I stand by the fact that I thought Sublette was going to be the face of the bullpen pretty much all year regardless. Uh, but Micah Dallas, you know, you have Micah Dallas alternating between your bullpen and starting roles. And, you know, typically they probably would have kept him in the bullpen full time if, you know, you have those guys not injured. Um, I think the same for Monteverde. I really, I think maybe if those guys aren't injured, Monteverde might be your third starter. And it's really crazy for me to say this, but because of how good he was so early and, you know, kind of lost an edge a little bit towards the end of the year, but, you know, we still loved having him around. But Monteverde, I honestly think that if you had a fully healthy pitching staff this year, I think that Monteverde might have been your week, your middle of the week guy. I mean, which is crazy to say because he anchored us on the weekends because of our injuries. But so you're losing, you know, Monteverde, Dallas, Sublet, which were some pretty big names. But I look for some of these guys that got some good, uh, some good appearances and some good experience. Uh, this year to step up. Uh, I'm 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 really excited for uh, Brendan Gurton. I think he'll be a huge part of that pitching staff. Uh, I also think, uh, you know, if Andrew Devine can get back to what he was in uh, 2019 uh, or 2020, what we saw kind of at the end in that regional game where he came in and and just threw like he used to. Uh, I think that if he gets back to that in 2022, I think he has a big part in the bullpen. Uh, I think, you know, you still have people like uh, Mason Montgomery. I I think he stays, and uh, I think that your pitching is going to take a hit, but I think that if we get all these injured guys back and, we, you know, we can keep a pretty healthy roster, uh, I think don't see really a weakness uh, on this roster, which is very exciting to say. And, you know, everyone was so quick to say that, you know, you know, 2020 sucked because that was the year that everyone had tech going pretty far. And, you know, we were number two or number three in the country when they called the season due to COVID. But I think 2022 roster, if, if everything shapes up, right. I think that that roster might be, just as good, if not a little better, than that that 2020 roster. Tech fans are waiting. I think there's a sense of anticipation about a national title being around the corner for Tadlock. And I think we're close. I think the I talked about this in the group chat at the very start of the year. The very start of the year when baseball's 
um, recruiting class locked. And I think at the time it was the 25th class in the nation. And one of the things that we talked about in the chat a little bit when that happened was, is my criteria for teams I consider to be national contenders, you know, true national title contenders, not just guys that might be good one day, but guys who are going to compete every year and be on the, the cusp of actually winning one. You have to do three things. First, you have to be extremely well coached. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that Tanlock is maybe the best coach in baseball, if not one of the top three. Uh, what he's done in tech proves that. You have to have strong support from your fan base because you have to have a strong home field environment because you need those home games. You need them. You need to be able to win your home series. People don't come into Lubbock and win that often, if ever. I mean, the Stanford series is especially shocking just because it happened in Lubbock. And then lastly, you have to recruit consistently in the top 25, which Tech has done now for a few years. And I think it's all coming together soon. I don't know if it'll be next year. I thought it was 2020. Then we started to get into this year, and until all the injuries, I thought it could be this year too. So next year, if we can please not have an all-time unlucky year with injuries, I think they're going to be very close. Are they going to be the favorite? Probably not, just because the pitching is going to be the biggest uncertainty. And in the college game, like any baseball, um, your pitching depth determines who can be a great team and who's going to win it all. Um, Tech was a great team this year. Pitching depth and some lack of depth elsewhere was why they didn't win at all. Uh, so I don't know if we're going to get there next season. I think Tech will be in the cusp or on on the brink of it. And I think within three years, I would expect Tadlock to get one. I think before he retires at Tech, he'll get two or three. I just think you're that dominant now as a baseball program. And like I said, it, it's something to see every year. You know, no matter how football goes, no matter what happens with basketball in the future. It's something to, to be comforted by to know that we're coming back to a team like Tech Baseball that's just – they're going to be fun pretty much every year. I don't see the regional streak any, any ending anytime soon. And to be honest, I'm not sure who knocks Tech off in the Big 12 consistently in the future. So you're going to always be battling the national seat discussion. Um, but we're going to move on from baseball. Um, we're going to move on to our next topic, which is – probably one of the bigger sporting stories in the news, which is the NIL debate, the name, image, and likeness uh, NIL debate. Uh, so for those of you unfamiliar with the concept, basically what's happening is the NCAA has waved the, right, the white flag on part of its model, which was always that amateurs could not benefit from their own likeness. They saw the losses coming in court, and they took a huge loss in the Supreme Court just the other day regarding their antitrust rules. What does it mean to be at a program where you can now, or in a state where you can now market yourself? It really depends. And um, one of the things I want to say before I get into this is that I am not an opponent, a proponent of paying players a true salary. I, I don't think you can do that without severely harming not the NCAA, but harming the colleges. I just don't think most athletic departments can sustain true salaries. My biggest solution has always been we embrace the name, image, and likeness rules and make sure that players can market themselves. And then if they would have made money in the open market, they'll make it this way. But do I think, I think there is a bit of panic about what does it mean now that a school like Texas, which is a huge brand, what are they going to tell recruits? You know, there's already articles written about how Sam Ellinger would have been a millionaire. And 
Here's where I think the NCAA actually screwed this up. This is my position because I don't think it's actually going to get as ugly as people expect just because every major program is going to throw money at these kids and it's still going to be the same thing. The best players are going to go to the best teams because they want to go play in the NFL. That's what's going to happen. They want to go win national titles. They're going to go to Alabama, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Clemson, and occasionally Georgia. That's that's where everybody's going to go regardless of these rules. But where I think the NCAA screwed up is because they didn't legislate this themselves, there's basically no rules on what these kids can make. I think a simple solution to this problem would have been pretty easily cap the top end of these kids can make. I've written this article before. Um, by the way, I've written this before. If you, if anybody wants to go through, hack through the time machine and find it on their own. But I made the exact same argument then as I'm making now. If you take a guy like Sam Ellinger and you tell him the most money we will let you make from your deals a year is $250,000. What college kid in any socioeconomic situation is saying, you know what? That's not fair. Yeah, I could. I should be making millions. I mean, that's just not, it wouldn't be something most people would rationally complain about. Yeah, they could make more, but you're if you're actually that good where you would make million dollars, you're going to be in the NFL in two years. You're going to be in the NBA in one year. You know, these kids need money now. This would still let them get money. I don't know what the magic number would have been, but I think that it says something that we don't have one. So now, yeah, is there a little bit of a valid concern that the top brands will dominate the sport? Yes, but they already do, so what's the point? It's a whole other discussion about how I think, in fact, I should write this article instead of waste your time here, but how I think that the NCAA could actually rebalance football. But one thing to also consider when discussing this debate, and it's important to always remember this, is that women's sports don't make money, but the female athletes are marketable. You know, UConn basketball makes all the money for for UConn. That's the only revenue-generating sport they've got because their athletic program's a dumpster fire. For everybody else, women's basketball is a money loser, more or less. But that's okay because the basketball players have brands. So if you want to ask, how do we help women's sports? Well, you're not going to suddenly make the country more interested in women's basketball or softball. It's not going to happen. But if you show females athletes and young girls that there is a path to make money as an athlete they'll pursue it right now there's no professional ranks for these girls the WNBA is the only one out there and it's a, it to be honest, it's a half-assed league it's second hand it, it's 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 a it's fun I like the women's game but it, there's no interest there so the money needs to be made when they're at their peak which is when they're still in college and the interest is at its highest it's something like of the three top followed athletes most of them i think two of the three in fact all three of them are women college women again have millions of followers and could you leverage that so i think this is the solution you're not suddenly going to make people pay more money to go watch women's basketball but you can let the girls who have a chance to make money on it do so and i think that'll drive more people into the sport that'll drive more interest into it and very slowly but surely we can start turning around the national discussion about women's sports and getting people involved. And I think the men are going to make truckloads of money in the football programs, the basketball programs. There's going to be more money than you can imagine flowing into these kids' hands. But I, I just can't – it all comes down to this. I don't think you can unbalance something that's already broken 
and football recruiting's already broken. So at least somebody's getting paid now who's actually doing the hard work. But I'm going to open it up to you guys now, Kendall. Just generally speaking, I mean, what do you think about where this is going for the future of football, baseball, all, all, all sports? You know, so going back to what you said about, you know, putting a cap on like the amount that a person can make, I think that'd be really difficult to do because based off the uh, NIL rules and stuff, you could have people doing lots of different things to make money. And one, so being in the state of Iowa, uh, there's one player here that has been making a lot of noise about this recently, and it's Jordan Bohan and the point guard out of Iowa. He, uh, he's been making a lot of noise on this because, you know, he's always been fighting it for the past three to four years that players should be making money from the NCAA. And so basically I feel like putting a cap on it is like, there's a lot of players that I feel like would go to uh, streaming and trying to make money there on places like Twitch or YouTube. And I think that's really hard to like limit the amount of money they would accept from something like that or just the small things. So I do think that they should be being be paid, but I think that it's really difficult to kind of like gouge how one player is going to make more than the other. And I think that it's going to take like a lot of steps to kind of even that out to make sure no one has like a clear set advantage over one school or another. But I do think that these NIL laws are a long time coming. And as far as the women's sports, uh, I think you're 100% right. I would argue that they're 10 times more profitable in college than they are in the WNBA because the women's March Madness alone, that's probably the biggest money get for women's sports outside of maybe the uh, women's soccer team, especially in the U.S. And like, I think basketball is one of their only high-profit sports that they would be able to get a lot from. So I think that women's sports, especially at the college level, would benefit a lot from the NIL, and I think that would encourage the next generation of women in sports to really be a lot bigger than what it is right now. And I, I, I only want to – I'll only sidetrack the conversation to just say I, I, I am still – flabbergasted at how badly the NCAA has managed the only two women's sports that people care about at the college ranks are softball and basketball those two will draw almost all the attention I can understand that you aren't necessarily going to pour all of your resources into it like you do the men's game it's not fair but it is what it is what I can't understand is just thinking nobody was going to care when you half-assed your basketball tournament, you screwed the softball team with its scheduling, and then volleyball, which of of the of every other women's sport is probably the third most important, it, it's like they didn't even bother to set up a tournament. Nobody could watch. It just I I, I can't understand the NCAA thinking they were going to get away with that level of incompetency. I mean, it, it, it's a special kind of stupid to think in the modern world. I can basically just flip the middle finger at all of these women and have nobody notice. Because that's what they did. They knew this wasn't okay. They had to have known. There was no way it didn't dawn on them that making a softball team play at like 3 in the morning because we didn't want to have an extra day or 
having a a rack of free weights for the women's basketball teams, and then just straight up not broadcasting the volleyball games until like the everyone complained. Understandably, I just I don't understand it. But Jack, you're you've always been our baseball guy. Baseball economics are drastically different in the pros. There's actually not a lot of money in it for a lot of guys who end up in the minors. What do you think? I mean, it, from from that angle, could we see more guys elect to come to college if they think they could make more in the short term doing that? The baseball economics are interesting to me. Uh, first, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I'm kind of an old school style person when it comes to uh, the thought of athletes and getting money. I'm one of those old school uh, people who I'm on the firm train of, you know, they're getting, they're getting an education. So I think that's the way that they should be getting paid. They're getting their schooling for free. You know, the regular Joe people like myself, you know, we're having to take out student loans. And, you know, some guys are, some of the, the preferred walk-ons and the walk-ons are. But, uh, you know, your you're really talented guys are getting full-ride scholarships. And like I said, there's a, there's a big issue in college baseball right now that, you know, college baseball doesn't get enough scholarships. And, uh, you know, with a – they get I – think, I think they get 11 they – they get almost 12 – uh, full ride scholarships to give out. Well, yeah, 12, 12 scholarships sounds like a lot, but when you have a roster of 40 to 50 guys, it really doesn't cut a dent. So you're talking, you know, more than uh, three quarters of your roster is having to foot some sort of bill. Um, so we have the baseball economics of it. I feel like there are a lot of uh, baseball players that could profit off this uh, NIL stuff. Uh, Kevin Copps? Are you kidding me? The the closer, the reliever for Arkansas, who just won all those awards as a pitcher. Uh, he's probably one of the best known names in the game that's not in Omaha right now. He could have profited a ton off of his likeness. Uh, here at Tech, you have Jace Young, who was leading the country in almost all major statistical categories for a portion of the year. Uh, you know, you have Cal Conley who just won the Brooks Wallace award for the best shortstop in the country. Uh, you know, you have, you have opportunities and, uh, you know, I, I can only think, I just feel like looking at this debate and, uh, seeing where it's going, I, I can't help but feeling in my gut that, you know, the, the landscape of college sports is about to, is changing and, uh, it's becoming more and more apparent. Uh, the uh, the longer this goes. And, uh, you know, do I think that it's a good idea? You know, it, I think if you if you don't do it now, it's going to happen within the next five years anyway. Uh, I, I firmly believe that's where it's headed. But I, I think now's the time. Uh, it would have been nice, you know, if you're going to do this for these kids to kind of have a way to get some extra cash or something uh, during the pandemic when they weren't able to actually play the sports. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I was a big uh, player of the video games that were NCAA related when I was growing up, you know, your NCAA football, 
uh, your NCAA March Madness, and the one year they made the best video game, in my opinion, which is uh, NCAA Baseball 06. Even though it had the UT kid on the cover, uh, I still bought that, and I played that every day for about three years because they didn't make another one after that. But I think that uh, for the video games, it's been a long time coming, especially with uh, you know EA announcing that they're going to bring back the NCAA football games. Um, so, you know, it's, it's bound to happen and it's, and it's about time. I think it's a little overdue. Um, I do like your idea of the cap. However, I mean, I do, I also agree with Kendall. I, I think it's kind of hard to regulate and, you know, I think at some point you're going to have to, you know, bring in people from the NCAA that are going to have to regulate it. It's just one more thing that the NCAA has to regulate. And as we have already talked about just now, the NCAA really is not too hot on regulating stuff. They're not very good at it. So uh, I think until they get a better feel for how everyone's or what everyone's thinking, how everyone's feeling, uh, it's going to be kind of like the Wild West to start out this whole thing. And if, if it does fully get passed and everything uh, for how much they can get or whatever, you mean all the power to them. They're, they're good athletes and you know, they, they keep us uh, occupied and they keep us entertained. So, you know, they should get a little bit of compensation, I believe. But like I said, I'm, I'm more of the guy that's uh, fully thinks that their education is a form of payment. Uh, a good education is, one of the best things that someone can get leaving college, uh, which I never got that people would leave uh, college early to go to the pros. If you've already had, you know, three years of getting education, why don't you just stay another year and get your education? I understand getting it in the off seasons an option now, but back in the day it didn't used to be. And that's why I think you saw pretty much everyone staying full four years. You didn't see those guys, you know, jumping ship and leaving after their sophomore season and stuff. But that's where I stand on everything. I, I just would think in general, when you look at the landscape of college sports, that it's just there's too much money changing hands to justify not letting people make money that the, the market's willing to pay them. I think it, it really does boil down like that to me. Because from the perspective of the scholarships, yeah, a lot of these guys are not and, and, and girls are not going to go pro. They just aren't. I mean, it, it's uncommon, and for women athletes in general, the women's game for all sports, there's just not a lot of money for them at all. I mean, unless you're going to go play for the women's national soccer team, there's really no money. I mean, the, the WNBA is paying, I think, like 80K, which to play basketball I'm, is probably pretty fun, but it's it's a rough year for them. I've read about how their schedules work and how tough it is for them to make money out of season, and then what do you do after the game, and all that jazz. But for the men in particular, even even for the men's game, where there are multiple viable pro options, they'll pay plenty of money. Not everybody's get to experience them, and then they still have to do something after. But I think the the reality of the situation is, is if we're, we're, we're basing this around the idea of education, here's why I think that the scholarship arguments don't go far enough with their compensation. And that's just the simple fact that if you told me that I could let these kids just come and play football for tech without ever going to school, if you told me that they could do that, 
nobody would give a crap. Nobody would care because they want to watch them play. We don't care. Every time, and I may be the only person who does, but every time I see someone, uh, the, the, the tech football program or any football program touting uh, 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 like an academic All-American, I'm just like, well, that's nice for them, but I really don't care because that doesn't impact me. It's the selfish part of it, and it sounds horrible, and you want these kids to be well-rounded and get a good education, all that jazz, but it's not why we care about them. So if we don't care about that part of them, I understand saying then they're not being compensated for the part we all do care about, which is their play, because that's what I care about. When Tyler Shuck goes out there, I could not care if he ever gets a master's degree at, at te- or excuse me, uh, gets his degree at Tech, or if um, that grad transfer from TCU, I don't care if he ever gets a master's. I wanted him here because I wanted him here that to play football. I mean, the joke is that we don't pay them to play school. We don't. I mean, it just, especially in college basketball, they are not there to get an education. They're there to play the game. Now, does that suck for the regular students who could very much use the scholarship? Yes, and I do understand that that resentment towards that. I, I think it's perfectly valid. There are a lot of people who desperately would love a full ride, who don't have the opportunity to do because they can't run fast or throw the ball far. And it's not fair. And it's not um, necessarily something they can. a lot of people can process. I get all that. I, I think those are valid emotions. But it all boils down to, though, if you were in their situation, I think most people would say they'd want to get paid. And I think the name, image, and likeness is the least we can do to let them take advantage of the brands that we all help them build by paying attention to them. Does this maybe mean we talk about reducing scholarships for major sports and putting that money elsewhere? Maybe. I, I don't know. That could be a discussion to have. Do we take some of these scholarships that we give to the 80-odd football players and start giving you know 20 of them away to some kids who are in socioeconomic situations are in trouble or have spectacular academics but didn't quite qualify for the full ride? Um, do we move them over to a sport like baseball where a lot of those guys aren't going to ever have brands? They're never going to make money off of this because they're never going to play. Um, you know, And th- that's part of this larger discussion. We don't have time to get through it all the way today because it is a complicated issue. For one, there's no national standards, so it's all a crapshoot right now. So we're going to close out today by talking about football and our expectations. And that was a weak-ass segue, and I apologize to everybody listening, but I'm realizing we are running a bit short on time. So we're going to keep this pretty high level, and just generally speaking, the question of the day is going to be, pretty plainly, what are your expectations? What would you consider, I should say, a successful season? So I'm going to throw it to Kendall first and reverse the order a little bit. Kendall, with Tech Football this year, what would you consider a successful mark for them to reach? This is, uh, you know, just based on their past couple seasons, they've had, like, some really, really bad showings these past couple years. So I think that the realistic expectation should be just like getting to a bowl game. Cause that's the next step in Matt will Wells coaching career at tech. But with the talent they have, it's hard to say that, you know, we shouldn't be expecting seven, eight, possibly even nine wins because it's not like outside of the top half of the big 12, like Oklahoma and ISU. It's not like there's a lot of games there that are, that teams are much more, 
talented than us. So I think that Tech is going to have a very high ceiling, but their floor, just because we don't know what we're getting out of coaching, could also be that another four and eight, five and seven season. But ultimately going into the season, I'm expecting at least a bowl game this year. Yeah, I think a bowl game has to start being the least of which we expect. And you have to earn that. I mean, we've, we've now gone, man, how, how of since Kingsbury, I think there's been now four years Tech hasn't even made a bowl game. Actually, five, thinking about this. So you're, you're no longer in the position where you can consistently rely on one. If Tech wants to be successful, though, that's the minimum mark they reach first. Now, for me, this year, I look at this team. I think you're going to be pretty good offensively. I think there's no reason to believe the offensive line won't be better. I think you may not have the best individual running back, but you do have the one of the best stables in the conference, and you and you're kind of three headed monster. Your receiving core is a little thin, but as long as as Akama stays healthy, you have elite talent to throw to. Uh, I don't I don't know about our tight end situation, but if they if the guys we've got there now develop and we actually use that role a bit more, we, we'll be pretty good. And I think. Tyler Shuck's the guy who's going to eventually be QB1. I think that's almost a certainty. And there's he's a Division One Power 5 starting quarterback. He wasn't that great at Oregon, um, but he put up good numbers. It's just the things in his game that you'd like to see him develop definitely are there. He didn't necessarily make the best decisions. His vision wasn't great. He made some really ill-advised throws. But none of it was anything to do with arm strength or athleticism. And I can live with the guy who needs to polish up his mechanics and decision-making a bit as long as he can throw the ball more than 30 yards downfield. And, you know, I, I, I think he's – I don't know if he's going to be the, the the number one overall draft pick, which he is getting some hype to be. I, I that, that That's where I'm at. If Tyler Shuck is actually legitimately that good, you're competing for it all because that you're good enough offensively. And my second point being I think you're going to be pretty good defensively. Um the defensive line's a bit of a liability, but I'm going to choose to believe that the transfers that are coming into the secondary that were Division One starters will continue to play at that level, and they're going to compliment your guys already back there and fill that group out. And Iowa State might fans might fight me on this, but I think Tech's starting linebacker group is the best in the conference, and I think your overall linebacker group is top three. Uh, Mike Rose obviously is where this the ointment the fly in the ointment there because he's probably a little bit better than Colin Schooler, but I think Schooler paired with Jeffers is a dangerous combination. So I think that for me, if I'm looking at that and trying to decide what do I consider successful this year, I would think you gotta win seven games. Because if you look at the schedule, there are four games that a monkey couldn't screw up. You are just better than Houston. I'm sorry if, if there's a random Cougar fan who listens to us but you are just better than Houston. If you lose to U of H, you are in for a rude awakening the rest of the year. That's not a good Houston team. They may be a bit better than last year where they were abjectly terrible, but I I, I don't think you're going to be threatened in your non-conference. So you got three games. Then you have Kansas, who, for the love of God, if we lose to or make it cl- it's a close game again, I'm, I'm going to cry. But you got four games that a monkey should not lose to with this team. So then you look at the rest of the conference. Where are you going to find wins to get to bowl eligibility and beyond? You've got Baylor, who is going to be bad. I mean, I don't mean to be mean to the Bears, and I don't like Baylor, but even that feels harsh. 
They've got a lot to work out. They may be marginally better, but they're still not going to be great. West Virginia is another program that they may be marginally better, but they were a six-win team in a bad Big 12. Kansas State's probably a toss-up game. Oklahoma State, probably a toss-up game. Um, so then you've only really got OU, Iowa State, and maybe Texas, where they're just a bit out of reach. They're just a, too talented, too well-coached. Not Texas, who we don't know how well-coached they are, but they are infinitely talented. But you've got three more games out of that out of that whole other half of the schedule to pick up. And I think that it would be a shame if you don't do it. I'd be horribly disappointed if we fell under the bowl season mark. I'd shrug it off if you were at least bowl eligible. I would be pretty excited for the future if with your super senior group, you were able to get to eight wins. Because at least then you get some momentum. But... um that that's kind of where I am with it. I really I'm I'm choosing to be optimistic this year, at least until they give me a reason not to be. And if you look at this schedule objectively, I think bowl eligibility is a minimum, and I think more than that is very possible. I I agree with that. Uh, first off, on your comment about the linebackers, I don't think anyone should try and fight you on that because I wholeheartedly agree. I think that uh, the starting linebackers is uh, head almost head and shoulders above as the best uh, linebacking core in the Big 12. Uh, it's talented. There's depth. Uh, you know, uh, you have Jeffers and Schooler who are phenomenal in their own right. I really liked the strides that uh, Jacob Morgenstern made last year. Uh, he, he was really good at coming over from Duke. I really like his play. Uh, looking at the schedule – I agree with you. The first three games should all be wins, easy, easy wins. Uh, Houston is not very good, as you said. I like the fact that the UT game is our first conference game, and it's in Austin. I like it because UT might not know what they're about just yet. Uh, Sark coming in from Alabama. You know, Sark has had kind of a troubled head coaching experience uh, throughout the college ranks, you know, uh, you know, had some, had some uh, alcohol issues when he was coaching out in Southern Cal. And, you know, hopefully he's got those under control for his own sake. Cause you don't wish ill will upon anyone, but you know, it kind of, you kind of throw that up, chalk it up to a toss up. Uh, Again, being optimistic at West Virginia with the way Matt Wells, for some reason, can just coach against West Virginia, you know, that's probably a toss up too. Um, TCU at home, I don't know. Their offensive line is going to be really not good. So their, their only offensive lineman that they had at all just transferred to tech. So. Uh, if our defense can get pressure through that line, I think it's going to be a long day for Duggan. Um, at Kansas, I just don't even want to talk about Kansas after the way we played against them last year because I just it's not going to be good if we lose that one. Uh, Kansas State at home, I think, I think Kansas State is a team that is often overlooked. They kind of started off really hot last year and just faded down the stretch. 
but I think that that's that could be a really good game. Oklahoma at Norman, I'm sorry, but there's just no chance. Uh, at home against Iowa State, I'd like to say there's a chance, but I really don't think so. Oklahoma State, you could do, and Baylor, you could do. So I mean, like I agree, there's there's a bowl there's a bowl season opportunity, and bowl game opportunity for this season, and I think that with you have people like Shuck coming in and and making an immediate impact, you have other you have other transfers coming in, uh, like Geiger from Troy. Uh, the other safety waters from Duke, you have guys that can make plays. Uh, and there's no reason that this team should not be better than they were last year. I think you lose, you lose some guys that were very, uh, very, integral to what you had. I think losing Eli Howard was a big hit to our defensive line. Uh, and I, and obviously losing uh, McPherson to the draft is going to be big for the, against the defensive backs. Um, I'll be the one to say it. And if anyone wants to jump down my throat after this game, then do it. But I don't think losing TJ Vasher does anything to this wide receiving core. I think of anything, it actually makes it better. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, highlight catches, cool, but I really don't see anything else uh, that's going to be a big deal there. Uh, so uh, you have an interesting group of guys kind of thrown from all different types of schools and a lot of transfers and a lot of, you know, guys that have actually played here for a while. Uh, I'm really excited. Like I said, I'm really excited to see that the defense and what it looks like. <laughs> Weirdly enough, I'm going to say it. I don't know if I've ever said it for tech football. I'm excited to see this defense play. I think Keith Patterson is an underrated defensive coordinator. I really do. I think that he doesn't get enough credit for the job that he's done since he's gotten to tech, which has been is leaps and bounces. It's the best defense we've seen in, I mean, arguably 20 years. So it's really nice to see. And I think that if Sonny Cumbie can come in and get his offense running the way he wants to run it, I'm hoping for shades of the offense that TCU had when they had Trevon Boykin that year. And they went, they made a pretty deep run. Uh, You know, if I think that was a year that Gary Patterson let him pretty much call whatever he wanted and it worked. And then for some reason after that, Gary Patterson really didn't like Sonny Cumbie. So, you know, I think that there are good opportunities here for this team. If they just want to rise up and take it. We're nearing the end of our time. So I'll wrap this up here. Yeah. I mean, the TJ Vasher of it all, I tend to believe tech underutilized TJ. I, I, I think there are some questions about how hard did he run routes or block when it wasn't called to him. But we had a six, like eight receiver with track speed and couldn't figure out a way to get him the ball. And I think that that's, that's a coaching staff problem 
to a large degree. Um, Eli Howard is a guy, and I, I don't want to offend any Eli Howard stands out there, but I didn't like his game. I thought he was the king of shoulda, coulda, woulda. He was the guy we kept thinking every year was going to be a bit better, and it never happened. He was never better than an occasional big sack, and otherwise he disappeared from games. The defensive line's your biggest liability next year, uh, or this upcoming season, I should say, for sure. Um, and that that's surprising because, like I said, I'm choosing to believe that the secondary transfers are going to be good. Um, you got a starter out of Duke, a starter out of Wisconsin um, to complement DeMarcus Fields and Eric Monroe. And um, losing McPherson sucks. I was hoping to get him back. But I think that if the defensive line is just a little bit better than they were last year, you'll have a very well-rounded defense and the first well-rounded defense you've had in years. Um like I said, we are closing this out. So I guess the final thought I want to take away is I think we're all kind of in consensus here that there's not an excuse for Matt Wells not to get to a bowl game. Um, we are nearing the end of his tenure if he can't do that this upcoming year. The schedule's favorable. He's got the talent he needs. He's, to if you ask some people, sacrificed developing talent in order to get into win now mode and bring in these transfers and he's got a ton of COVID super seniors. I mean, it's this is an old team, and this is the year you're going to win with it or not. So I'm of the opinion, and I I, I don't know if uh, Matt Wells is truly a great coach or not. You know, he he may be a great coach. He's had some bad luck, but whatever that whatever you want to chalk up the last two disasters, whether it was having too much faith in in, in an offensive coordinator or having just the world's worst luck, whatever you want to chalk it up to, it's it's now or never. We're going to find out this year what kind of coach he is because he has everything in place to just be okay. I don't think anybody expects Tech to win a national title this season. Now, like I said, unless Tyler Shuck is legitimately number one overall draft pick, kind of talent and by a wide margin, you're not going to be anywhere near that level. You know, You're probably not anywhere near OU. You might touch Iowa State, maybe. But... um you're not there yet, so we're going to find out real quick. And the last thing I want to say is because I always tried to disparage TCU whenever I can. And the, the thing I want to say about TCU, since it was brought up, is while their offensive line is probably not going to be very good, you know who's really going to hold that team back? And that's Max Duggan. And every TCU fan can fight me on that, and they have. But the, the end of the story is I was right last year when I said he wasn't very good, and I'm going to be right this year. He has not developed as a passer his entire tenure at TCU. They were celebrating that he just only sucked a little as a passer last year. Look, you can't fix fast, or you you, you can't make somebody fast. He, he's got elite speed. But, you know, as a college quarterback, we've kind of gotten past that being enough. You do have to be able to throw the ball, and TCU has lost a lot of games because he has not been able to. So I always have to take a shot at him and TCU whenever I get the chance. It, it's in my contract. It's a rule. Um, but that's going to be our show. We are a little bit over an hour as of this recording. I'll probably trim it down a little bit, try to give you guys one hour of jam-packed content. We will be back in about two weeks for another recording. We'll keep our normal every other week schedule until we get the football season. And uh, we'll when we hit that first U of H preview, we'll be starting to go every week, every every game, to start looking ahead and looking at some of our opponents and it's going to be a really fun football season. I think we're all expecting some better results and hopefully none of this comes back and we don't get old take exposed later on. Um, that that's like my nightmare with tech football is one of these days I say something that they notice. 
So let's see how it goes and wreck them. And we'll see you guys very soon.